Amen. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, for the first three weeks of the year, this, uh, this year, we're going to just camp out in Luke chapter 17. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there uh, with me, you can, or you'll see it's printed for you if you want to look there or be on the screen behind me as well as we, when we read in just a minute. Before we get to that, let me echo what Jonathan said. There are a couple things we're going to do this next year. Uh, to give us opportunities to be together outside of the Sunday morning gathering and also to intentionally uh, do some things moving towards being a praying church and recognizing also that as the world around us continues to slide into not only a post-COVID world but a post-Christian world, just the need to really be building. The scripture calls us to build one another up, uh, to be edifying and encouraging one another and particularly our kids. And so we are going to be doing, you'll see, uh, beginning in February, just for about six weeks, uh, every Wednesday night, an all-call for everyone, all ages, adults, kids, teenagers, all here at the same time for some training. Catechism for kids, youth group for the youth ministry, we'll do training in here with adults. So be mindful of that. The other thing is we want to have some gatherings. Patrick and Molly were really wanting to do this. And so the first of those is going to be this coming Thursday, January 6th, which is Epiphany. If you're wondering, isn't Christmas over? Right? Why are all the Christmas things up? Actually, it's not over. We're in the middle of the Christmas season. You with me? Christmas didn't start until Christmas. Right? It doesn't start like after Halloween. Uh, no, according to the church calendar, Christmas season is 12 days of Christmas, the song sings, and it starts on Christmas Day and goes through Epiphany. And on Epiphany, January 6th, is this, the commemoration of the Magi's visit to the Christ child. And really, the, the lesson is that the gospel is a gospel not just for the Jewish people, which is great news for you and me, right? You with me? Hello? You Gentiles, are you paying attention? Praise the Lord that the, the gospel is not just for them, but it's for us as well, but it's for the whole world. So we want to gather this Thursday evening. We're going to sing a whole lot. Uh, we're going to pray a lot. We're going we're gonna to pray the gospel to the nations and rec recognize that the nations are coming to us. And then we need to get ready for that as well. So I would encourage you, come Thursday night. It'll be a smaller gathering, but we'll have a good time doing that. It'll be just, just 45, 50 minutes, something like that. But, but be mindful of those two things as we move towards the new year. But what we're going to do for the first couple of weeks here is this, this sermon, little kind of a mini-series called Graced, talking about what it means to be people of grace uh, and two disciplines of grace, the grace of gratitude and the grace of forgiveness. And they're both here in this text in, um, in Luke chapter 17. And so let's read together if you would. We're going we're gonna to start in verse 5 and move forward this week. We're going to start in verse 5 and move backwards towards the beginning of the chapter next week because verse 5 really is the pivot uh, of the text. What's happening is Jesus is talking to his disciples about forgiveness. And they say, you know, how often do we have to forgive? And he says, if your brother, if your brother uh, sins against you seven times every day, and if seven times you forgive him, and that leads to verse 5 where we pick up because it's a... It's a, it's a um, a startling statement Jesus makes that leads the apostles to say this, beginning in verse 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. That's their response. We don't have the faith for that, they said. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And then he moves on to tell a parable in the next little bit. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming from the field... Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards, you will, will, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? 
So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he, passed along, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Now here's what I want you to do. I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, as I do. And then I want you to repeat this phrase after me, if you would, with me, okay? So I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say, The grass withers. And the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. This is my funeral text. I nudged Jonathan before during the service and told him that and said, so I just want you to know. And he said, I'm not preaching your funeral. So apparently Jonathan's not preaching my funeral. I'm taking offers from whoever would like to do that. So Ashley didn't know, but Ashley, this is my funeral text. This is, this is what I want engraved on my gravestone. I hope that these words are written across my life at the end. He was an unworthy servant. He only did his duty. They are the words that, that we all should live by. When people remember me, I want them to think of me this way, as a person of gratitude and grace, humility, hard work, but not taking himself too seriously. Gratitude and grace. Gratitude and forgiveness. Gratitude and love. Both are here. This chunk of teaching begins with a call to forgiveness. As I said, it ends with gratitude. And the connective tissue between those two things is grace. And so those are the, those are the things we're going to talk about for the next uh, few weeks. All year this year, we're really going to be talking about the reality of both gospel doctrine and gospel community or gospel culture. Gospel countenance. Right? Believing the gospel and then countenancing the gospel in the way that we live and and, and look towards one another. And gospel doctrine is the message of God's grace for the undeserving. Gospel community is the shared experience of God's grace for the undeserving. As we treat one another, not according to our sins, but according to the grace that we have been shown. Believing the gospel leads to becoming the gospel with one another. Doctrinal purity, relational beauty. Responding to grace with gratitude, expressing gratitude by being gracious to one another. That's what we're really going to kind of center ourselves around all year. The way that if you believe the gospel, it starts to show up in your relationships and in your lives. Because it is possible to believe the doctrines of grace and then turn around and deny those doctrines with an ugly anti-gospel culture. And we don't want to be a church like that. We think it's important for us to be a church that countenances the gospel that we claim to believe in a world that desperately needs not only to hear the truth of the gospel, but to experience it in the people that claim it to be true. So this is our emphasis. So I thought that it might be wise to start the year with three sermons, one on gratitude, one on forgiveness, and one on grace. Because gratitude and forgiveness are two spiritual disciplines that I would like for us all to pursue this next year. I'd love for you to make a gratitude prayer card. So Bob, here you go. Here's your assignment. Help us, Bob. We need to make a gratitude prayer card and a forgiveness prayer card. If you would do that, because I'm asking you to, I would be truly grateful. This morning we're going to talk about gratitude. 
Uh, and we're going to look at this text because it really is a text about gratitude. And we're going to ask these three questions of the text and then seek answers to them. Well, if, if we're talking about gratitude, then what is gratitude? And secondly, why is it so hard? Because it is. Let's be honest. It's, it's really hard. And then thirdly, how do you get better at it? How do you strengthen your gratitude muscles to become a person who truly exhibits, you know, and lives a life of, of gratitude to God? So what is it and why is it so hard? And how you actually can get better at it if you're not good at it? And let's talk about a little bit about how it is that you strengthen your gratitude muscles to become even better at it. And so let's just walk through the text looking at those three things first. Let's ask the question, what is gratitude? And I'd like to start from verse 5 and work forwards because verse 5 is the nexus or it's January. It's the Janus. It's the verse that looks both forward and backwards at the same time. It connects verses 3 and 4 with about forgiveness with verses 7 and following, which is about gratitude. And if you look there in verse 5, it says, The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And so the first thing we should say is that gratitude is an expression of faith. So let's define faith. Well, faith is having God in full focus and seeing everything else with peripheral vision. Let me say that again. Faith, according to the Bible, is having God in full focus and seeing everything else with peripheral vision. The opposite of faith is unbelief. It is seeing God peripherally. Because you've become so focused on something else, on a relationship, on a bank statement, on a news cycle, on whatever it might be. Gratitude begins with faith. A.W. Tozer famously said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so faith starts with God and then looks at everything else through the lens of who God is. Not who we think he is, but who he says he is. And so there's one of two ways that you can live your life. You can let your circumstances determine your theology, or you can let your theology determine your circumstances. You can say, look at how I'm suffering. Look at how hard and how bad my life is. God can't possibly be loving, or he wouldn't let this happen to me. Or you can say, I know that God is love, and I know that he's good, and I know that he's wise, and there's this thing I'm going through, and it's hard, but... Because I know those things about him, there must be more to this suffering than what I can see at first glance. Faith is believing certain things about the character of God at such a depth that it influences the way you view and you navigate your circumstances. It's a filter, right? You all, if you're on Instagram, you've all seen uh, the photos that people take, but then you know, and then they say hashtag no filter, right? A filter is a mechanism that lets you change how the photo looks. It can improve the lighting or the coloring. It beautifies the scene, the picture that you're taking, because of course you wanna put the very best, most beautiful, most colorful picture out there that you can. Well, faith is like that. Faith filters life through the character of God. And as it filters it through it, the character of God beautifies. It, It makes life more vibrant. It highlights the good things. It highlights the colorful parts of life. There are the ways of God and the works of God. And faith interprets God's works in light of his ways. God's character defines his action, not the other way around. So faith is a matter of focus. God in full focus. What are you focused on? It's a great question to ask here at the beginning of the year. God is full focus when you're living by faith. Your circumstances and your feelings are peripheral. God is full focus. Now, gratitude... If that's what faith is, gratitude is an expression of faith. Gratitude and faith are synonyms. 
But gratitude is having a particular part of God's character in full focus. And so what is it that faith believes about God that becomes gratitude? What characteristic of God is it when it's full focus and not peripheral that leads to gratitude? And the answer from the Bible and from this text is God's grace. Gratitude is the fruit of believing that God is gracious. And grace means that God's love is free. It is undeserved. It's unchanging. It's unending. His love for his people is not contingent upon anything in us, good or bad. God is not good to us only when we're good. He's good to us when we're good. And he's even better to us when we're bad. He does not relate to us according to our sins, but according to his promises and character, which means he never gives us what we deserve. We always get more than we deserve. Am I right? We always get more than we deserve. Every single one of us, no matter who you are, no matter whether you believe or not, Jesus noted that God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good every morning, and it's more than we deserve. Life is, full, is more than we deserve. And therefore, the response should be gratitude, an expression of faith in light of the reality of God's grace. But secondly, if that's where gratitude comes from, why is it so hard? And here we got to move on to the parable of the unworthy servant because these, all these parts of this text, it's why I love Luke 17 so much, is they're all connected masterfully by Luke. He's, he's bringing together Jesus' teaching around this theme. And so let's look at this parable beginning in verse 7 and going through verse 10. If gratitude is an expression of faith, then a lack of gratitude is unbelief. It is the result of God's grace becoming peripheral in your vision, of you starting to believe that life is something other than getting more than you deserve. Grace becomes peripheral. And what typically happens is, is your works, the things that you've done, the things that you deserve, your worthiness to get the kind of life that you want is what becomes the focus. And so this parable is an illustration of how we can live with that unbelief. Let's look at it again, beginning in verse 7. Jesus says, it really is shocking. It's some hard truth here. Look at, look at how he puts it. He says, will any one of you, if you have a servant, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he's come in from the field. So he's, the servant's coming in at the end of the day after a long day of hard work. Jesus is saying, is this how you treat your servants when they come in at the end of the hard day? Say, hey, come and sit down and recline at table and let me take care of you and serve you dinner. no. After the servant has had a long, hard day in the fields and he comes inside, you say to him, prepare my supper for me and serve me while I eat and drink. That's the way masters treat their servants. Does he thank the servant, he says, because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded to do, you say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. Now, what's the lesson? And I think the lesson is this, that the servant, just by doing his work, does not merit being treated like the master. He's a servant. He's only done what was commanded, nothing more. Now that word, verse 10, unworthy, that's where we get tripped up. It's the key, and we don't, we don't understand it rightly. It doesn't mean that he's done a bad job. It doesn't mean he's doing something wrong. It means that his doing hasn't earned him anything. There's no merit in it. And that's the important thing to note. What makes you grateful what causes gratitude to explode in your life is not having a lot, but knowing that you deserve nothing. The gravitational pull of our hearts is to take credit for things. If you're a good dad, 
You know, your kids might give you some, I'm sure somebody in the church got a coffee mug, world's best dad for Christmas this year, something like that. But when it comes to God, if you're a good dad, you've just done your duty, nothing more. If you're a pastor like me or a missionary, you don't get to put your feet up and demand that everybody else serve you. Because of the sacrifices you've made, it doesn't make you some kind of spiritual hero, one of God's favorites. At the end of all of your hard work and sacrifice, you still owe him. He doesn't owe you anything. Other people don't owe you anything. You've only done what was commanded. He doesn't owe you thanks, but you owe him. We are all mere servants. That's the teaching. But there are two ways to think about the good things in your life. As either wages or gifts. This is Romans chapter 4. Paul dives into this. Wages or gifts. And with God, there are no wages. That's what Paul says there. There are only gifts. Unbelief, though, imagines life as work and wages. You do a job, you get paid. You do for God, and then God will do for you. You obey, and then you're deserving, and God will reward you with the good things that you have merited and that you've earned. You do your work, and then you sit down, and you kick your feet up, feet up and you let God take care of the rest because you've done your part, and now he owes you. You can demand that he give you the kind of life you think you deserve because of all the obedience and all the hard work that you've done. But that is not Christianity. It's legalism. It's religion. And the lesson in this whole section here in Luke chapter 17 is, is it creates ingratitude. Because faith knows that life is grace. That all of the good things in life are gifts. That there is nothing that we have that we did not receive. Can I say that again? There's nothing that we have that we did not receive. And therefore we should not boast as if we've earned anything. It is God's grace, not our doing, that is responsible for the good things in our lives. And at the end of all of our doing, we are nothing more than unworthy servants. Our good works don't get us anywhere with God. We need grace. Amen? We need grace. You need grace. I need grace. We need grace, not only for the bad things we do, but also for the good things we do, too. Because the good things could never be good enough to stand on their own. But unbelief says, I can obey God, and then he will owe me, and then I can demand that he give me the treatment that I deserve. And there are two symptoms of that spiritual disease of unbelief. And this isn't explicit in the text, but I think it's a good application of it. And I'd point, I'd, I'd just... <clears throat> Point your focus to these two things, two symptoms, and they are entitlement and self-pity, and they are the enemies of gratitude, <clears throat> and I want to talk about both, okay, really quickly, because see, if you believe that life is wages and not grace, and if you're doing well, which most of us in the room are, so if you believe that life is wages and not grace, and if you're doing well, and if you're for the most part meeting expectations, at least relative to everybody else, then you need to be careful about entitlement, because entitlement is a gratitude killer. It's the feeling that you've earned what you have because life is a wage and not a gift and you've earned the wage. Now this is the problem with the human heart in general but it is specifically a problem for us culturally. Glenn Harrison has written a book called Ego Trip about the self-esteem movement and just whether or not it has proven effective at all. And you know the self-esteem movement that began in the 60s and 70s and has now indoctrinated multiple generations and we're just now starting to realize the problem is not low self-esteem. When you try to fix low self-esteem with giving people positive self-esteem, you don't create healthy people. You create entitlement and narcissism. We 
We now shield our kids from failure. We make sure there are no winners and no losers and everybody gets a prize and everybody is deserving of special treatment, we say, just because. And so Harrison calls it a global praise. We just go around giving global praise. And you know, when I, when I read that, what came to my mind is, is Abilene in The Help talking to the little girl that she takes care of. You is kind, you is smart, you is important, which is so sweet and you watch it and it's, oh, that's so sweet. But it's kind of the sense of, you know, you just repeat it over and over again until it becomes true because you believe it to be true, but really for no particular reason. It creates this, this idea of we're all special and we all deserve to be treated as if we're special and it creates entitled narcissists. If you don't believe me, just ask a third grade teacher. They'll tell you. But even beyond that, the country is being bankrupted by entitlement programs. And it's ugly to see people act as if they deserve something, not because they've earned it, but because they are disenfranchised, they're a victim. I mean, people who took out student loans to go to college and then act as if they shouldn't be expected to make the payments on those loans. And then, of course, there are those of us on the other side saying, well, we shouldn't be rewarding people who refuse to work. They don't deserve it. (laughs) Which, of course, means I think I do because I've worked hard for everything I've got. But that sounds like entitlement too, doesn't it? Man, we're in trouble. Do you see how much trouble we're in? This is a big problem. So be careful. Be careful of the way that entitlement can begin to creep in. But also, on the other side, if you believe that life is wages and not gifts, and you're doing pretty good, but you're not getting what you think you deserve, then you need to be careful with self-pity. Because self-pity is a, a gratitude killer too, because it focuses on what you do not have rather than what you do. William Farley, in a book called The Poison of Self-Pity, he says, self-pity is a vacuum into which gratitude cannot enter. It is self-worship. It demands center stage. It seeks to be worshipped, and it dethrones God. Therefore, self-pity and thanksgiving cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. What happens in self-pity is you begin to live according to a narrative of victimhood. And Diane Butler Bass has written a book called Grateful, which I read recently, And uh, in that book, she uses a really helpful illustration. She talks about the difference between headwinds and tailwinds. So if you've ever flown, you know, you know, you, you, there are, you go one way and you're, you're, you know, the wind's coming at you, the Gulf Stream's coming at you, or whatever it might be, and, and you know, there's wind friction coming towards you. So a headwind is resistance. It's, you know, you're, you're having to plow through resistance. It's wind in your face. A tailwind is the opposite. It's help. It's the wind at your back. So headwinds are barriers. Tailwinds are blessings. And every single person has both. Part of every person's story is both. However, studies show overwhelmingly that we tend to pay more attention to life's headwinds than we do the tailwinds. Is anybody surprised by that? And it's a function of our pride. We boast about overcoming our disadvantages relative to others. We downplay the tailwinds. They're invisible to our pride. We tend to falsely believe that our road has been especially difficult while falsely believing that everyone else's has been uniquely easy, which creates envy and jealousy that, if we're not careful, can harden into resentment and self-pity, which she describes self-pity as feelings of thwarted entitlement. So self-pity is just a form of ingratitude because it tends to ignore all the blessings. Because here's the reality is that everybody faces barriers and everybody enjoys blessings, but self-pity says, I only have barriers and no blessings. 
and everybody else only has blessings and no barriers. And the big problem is, as you allow yourself to begin to view life through that lens, you're giving into negative emotions, which foster even more negativity that keeps going and going and going until you develop what the Bible calls a root of bitterness. The root structures of your life become self-pity and ingratitude. And it's a really dangerous spiritual position to be in. So both entitlement and self-pity are unbelief because they're built on an anti-grace foundation. At the core, they both believe that life is wages, not grace. With entitlement, you've earned what you're getting, and so there's no gratitude. With self-pity, you've earned better than you're getting, so again, there's no gratitude. And there's no gratitude in either because there's no grace. But Christianity is grace. Christianity says what you do doesn't count, but what matters is what God does for you. Your doing, Christianity says, is deadly until you learn to lay it down. You have to learn, in other words, that you'll never be right with God through your own doing, and you lay it down. You stop trying to put God in your debt. You stop trying to do good things that that can cause God to owe you. You stop trying to earn God's love and favor with your doing. You don't get rid of works, you just, just your works. Because it is God's works that matter, not yours. But if it is God's works, listen, if it is God's works that matter and not yours, then who owes who? Does God owe you? Or do you owe him? If it's your works, then he owes you. But if it's his works, then you owe him. Do you see how that works? Now I'm getting ahead of myself a little just a bit, but the leper, beginning in verse 11, is Jesus' example of faith and gratitude. So if there's a negative example in verses 7 through 10, there's a positive example alongside negative in verse 11 and following. This leper had no illusions about being worthy. He knew that he was an unworthy servant. He was, he, you know, he was, he, he had no illusions about anything else. His only hope was that Jesus was full of grace. Look at verse 12. He cries out, Master, have mercy. He knew that was his only shot, that Jesus would prove merciful. He was a leper. And in the ancient world, leprosy was more than a disease. It was a social verdict. And so these, this, this, these ten lepers had come together because they'd been ostracized from their community. But we're also told he was a Samaritan, verse 16. A foreigner, verse 18. An outsider. Yet of the ten, he was the only one who responded rightly to being healed. Now make the connection. you got to make the connection. It was because he knew he deserved nothing. Among the ten, he was the only one. It was because he uniquely knew he deserved nothing that he was the one who proved grateful. And this takes us to the most basic teaching of Christianity. What we call the gospel. We are all sinners. Deserving of nothing except judgment and hell. Yet God loves us, not for our own sake, but for Jesus' sake. At our very best, we are still unworthy servants. That's why it shouldn't feel like a criticism to hear it in Jesus' lips. At our very best, we are unworthy servants, but there is one worthy servant whose work has earned for us every good thing that God gives. Our works don't get us anywhere with God because he is the king and we are the servants. What we offer him is just our duty. As long as he is the king and we are the servants, it can be nothing more. But what if the king himself became a servant. What if that happened? Then the works 
he would do would be something more than a duty. They would be worthy. They would be worthy. We sinfully are servants acting like kings, but the gospel is the beauty of the king who became a servant. God does not reward your good works. He died for your good works. Do I need to say that again? He doesn't reward our good works. He died for our good works because they were not good enough to stand on their own. But what he has done in Jesus Christ, that is the spring of every other good thing that you enjoy. And so gratitude is the main motivation of Christianity, which means that we need to learn how to become better at it. And so third and finally, how do you strengthen your gratitude muscles? And the answer to that is the same way you strengthen your body. You need spiritual habits the way you need physical habits. You need to go to the gym. You need to turn gratitude from a noun into a verb. And now we come to the story of the ten lepers beginning in verse 11. Here we see ten lepers. They begged Jesus for mercy. He told them to go to the temple and show themselves to the priests. But as they did, they were healed. But then the surprise in the story is that although all ten were healed, only one turned back to say thank you. One came back to Jesus. Now what is the lesson? Psalm 92.1 says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It's a right. It's appropriate. It's the way we should live. And yet, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said this, If you search the world around among all choice spices, you shall scarcely meet with the fragrant sense of gratitude. It ought to be as common as the dewdrops that hang upon the hedges in the morning. But all, alas, the world is dry of thankfulness to God. And Jesus says, verse 17, I mean, Jesus is a little put off by this. He says, we're not ten cleansed, where are the nine? I mean, there was something really wrong with the way they responded. And he is quite honest about that. And there's something really wrong with the way that we go through life every day, turning lights on and off in our house and not being constantly amazed that we can do that. We counted. We have, how many? Nine? We have nine light switches in our bathroom, guys. We counted yesterday. We were like, because, and they don't all, and it's hard to keep them all off at the same time or keep them all on. And we should go through, we should do, like, we should be confronted by these things and just stand in utter amazement at how awesome life is. We have 10,000 reasons to be full of wonder and joy. And yet, the one thing that isn't going exactly the way we want it to can take it all away. Sin is cosmic ingratitude. We are the lepers. Again, to circle back, Paul, the apostle, said it like this in 1 Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Answer that first question. That would be a great starting point for reflection for you in the new year. What do you have that you did not receive? Can I go ahead and give you the answer? Nothing. All of life is gift. And so all of life should be gratitude. But if you're anything like me, hearing that sounds like somebody saying, you need to grow wings, you know, and fly across the Atlantic. Because it feels that far out of reach. And it is, unless God comes to work in your life. But, one of the ways that you put yourself in the place where you can is you have to take yourself in hand. You have to make yourself do what you don't feel like doing until by doing it, you begin to feel like it. Until your should becomes a can. 
right? The whole, the whole movement is that the, 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 the Bible's full of shoulds, but the promise of the gospel is that because Jesus not only died and was raised, he has gone to heaven, and from there he sent the Spirit. And because the Spirit has come, there's a promise in the Spirit's coming that every should is able to be a can. And so you do the should until it becomes a can. You make yourself do what you don't feel like doing until by doing it you begin to feel like it. So the psalmist says, this is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. It's the first prayer I pray every morning. Jonathan, rumor, like legend has it that he sings it in the shower every morning. I don't know. I, Jamie, if you could confirm that to us, we would love to know. And if you want to tape it, if you want to like audio tape it one day, that would be great too. It would encourage my faith. But, the, but listen to what the psalmist is saying there. This is the day the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. He is not saying, I'm so happy about today. No, he's talking to his heart. He probably woke up grumpy, like I do most mornings. And so he's talking to his heart instead of listening to his heart. He's reminding himself of the truth that every day we enter into a day of God's making. That promises to be full of good things, grace upon grace upon grace. And he's making himself pay attention at the beginning. He's activating his faith before he even goes through the day so that as he goes through it, he can see the things. Thanksgiving is a spiritual discipline. So much so that God commanded Israel three times a year to just stop work for a week and just celebrate and give thanks. So some practical advice as we round to the close here. From the leper that returned. And you, you'll see a number of things there. You just kind of look at the details of the text. It says that he turned back. And that's the first thing that I would say to you is you have to turn back. There has to be intentionality. There has to be activation. Right? You have to stop what you're doing and set aside time. You have to interrupt your life. That's what those feasts were about, Israel's feasts. Or, you know, where work stopped. There was prep time. There was travel. There were all of these things that had to go into it and that has to happen for you too it doesn't just happen you have to have some kind of method for this to take place diana butler bass again she calls it a gratitude intervention you need to develop some kind of cue that initiates the habit because that's how habits work create a gratitude journal go for a walk every night to reset you know the day at the end of the day whatever it is you have to return you have to turn back there has to be activation. Secondly, you have to be loud. There has to be amplification. Do you see that it says the man praised Jesus in a loud voice? And I just want to say, God is worthy of loud praise. You with me? Our worship should be loud. Our life should be loud. You have to, so th there's a need to rouse yourself. I'm all about reverence and quiet. But sometimes you have to be loud. You have to go big. So don't be afraid of that. So activation and amplification. Third, he came and it says he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. And that's the third thing. You have to fall down. There has to be humility. You have to put yourself in the presence of God. You have to fall at his feet. So the goal is to stop thinking about yourself. That's the whole problem. That's why there's so little gratitude is you're thinking too much about yourself. And focus instead on what, who God is and what he's doing in your life. And look for his hand in your circumstances. And then when you see him, write those things down. And make note of it. There has to be appreciation. The falling down is, that's, you know, a grateful person is a person who's just full of appreciation. Do you know what I mean by that? What's the opposite of that? Like, there's no demand. There's no 
It's just, they're just bubbling over with joy and appreciation. So activation and amplification and appreciation. And then lastly, adoration. You have to praise. It says he turned back and in a loud voice he praised. Diana Butler Bass, one more time. She says, gratitude is a habit of awareness about God. It stretches through all of our experiences, past, present, and future, creating, listen to these words, they're really, really nice, creating a fabric of appreciation and awareness that form the story of our lives. That's praise. Praise looks back on the past and acknowledges both the headwinds and the tailwinds, but it focuses on the tailwinds. It looks at the present with a wide-angle lens, looking to the peripheral things, because typically it's in the periphery where the good stuff normally hides, and it looks towards the future, hopefully, not cynically. So she says, all around us, every day, there are gifts. Whether we are facing a crisis or not, no matter our challenges or feelings, there are gifts most of which go unnoticed, unappreciated, and often disregarded. Gifts seem to spring upon us like an epiphany, bursting our hearts with that wild admixture of humility and joy we know as gratitude. But if we cultivate our awareness to see those gifts more often with clearer and more consistent vision, something else happens. Thankfulness becomes more habitual. It becomes a regular part of how we respond to the world. So gratitude is not just a knock-your-socks-off revelation of goodness and beauty. It emerges as a daily, even hourly, disposition of appreciation toward familiar gifts, including all the tailwinds of blessings. And that's the way I want to live my life. Don't you? Singing, as the hymnist does, it's my daughter's favorite hymn, For the Beauty of the Earth for the glory of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies. Christ our Lord, to you we raise this our hymn of grateful praise for the wonder of each hour, of the day and of the night, hill and vale and tree and flower, sun and moon and stars and light. But I love the last verse. For yourself, best gift divine to the world so freely given, agent of God's grand design, peace on earth and joy in heaven. Christ, our Lord, to thee we raise. This our hymn of grateful praise. Would you pray with me? And then let's do that together. So, Father, we are often so discouraged and so afraid of our own shortcomings. We are often so empty of the glory that we are made to live with because of the way that sin has alienated us from you, that we are constantly trying to do something that proves that we are worthy of being loved. And so we do things and then we draw attention to ourselves and we try to magnify those things to feel better about ourselves and to, and to get appreciation and love and glory from others and from you. It's the way we live our lives, but it leaves us just void of wonder in worship, in awe, and gratitude. And so we ask that you forgive us and meet us at this place where we would say, Lord, we've been doing life all wrong. Help us. Help us to change and to embrace the reality that life is grace upon grace upon grace. It is gift after gift after gift. We deserve nothing, and yet you overflow with generosity and love towards us. And it, it is a knock-your-socks-off kind of love. But we're so busy, 
we're so distracted, we're so um, introspective sometimes that we miss it. And so we ask that you help us not do that. We ask that your spirit would come now and just make us mindful in a quiet moment here. I think we ought to just take a quiet moment. And as we do so, would you just fill, fill your mind with the thoughts of this? What have you received? What did you receive in 2021? Uh, that, what, what do you have from 2020, 2021 that you did not receive? Just take a moment, reflect. What are the good things God brought into your life? this past year. And then what is he deserving of? And so we ask, Father, that you unlock our hearts now in a display of gratitude as we sing this song about the future joy that we will have in heaven. But may we not wait until then to begin to feast, but may we feast now, and may the result of that feast be joy and gratitude that honors and glorifies you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, that's great. Don't you want that? Don't you look forward to that day when our hearts will be restored and we will feast and sing and joy like that. But here's the thing. Gratitude can turn your life into that kind of feasting every day, which is why we need to press in and ask the Lord to begin uh, to continue to work to strengthen our gratitude muscles. And so here's how that works. You go now being sent by him, but being sent with this promise, not being sent to say, go, hey, go work it out on your own. Go figure it out and make yourself worthy. No, he's saying you're going to go and whatever you do there is not going to make you worthy. Jesus Christ has already made you worthy and so you can go underneath my smile. That's what these words mean. So receive them uh, and rest in them uh, knowing you're an unworthy servant but that doesn't mean you're not loved. Right? Just know that. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.